0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Boy, I've got just a killer sun reflection happening right here. So if anybody wants to take a nap and not get caught, tonight's the night, because I can't see anything but that. Over the last few weeks in, in our gospel lessons, we've been hearing about how to lovingly approach a fellow Christian who is being overcome by sin. We've heard about what sort of forgiveness we're expected to offer others when we are the ones being sinned against. And tonight we're continuing sort of along the same theme. The thread that sews all these readings together is how important it is for us to keep our eyes fixed upon the mercy of God. It is absolutely imperative for those in Christ's church to keep their eyes fixed upon the mercy of God. If you've been with us for a while, then you know that we talk a lot about being people who have been hidden with Christ in God. And as we've continued to set out into Christ our ocean, we've said that the compass points for us as a church, the things that are going to help us understand and imagine ourselves rightly in the world, are for us to be apostolic, sacramental, eschatological and gospel people, and I realize that three or maybe four of those words make no sense to most of us. We unpack them over time, so if if this is your first week here, just disregard those. You'll hear more about them soon, but tonight I want to just say I, I think our text shows us both why we must be eschatological people, people who are living for the end, we see the end in view, and gospel people. Just prior to this story in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been giving some pretty hard sayings about what is required in following him, specifically for rich people. The story of the rich young ruler precedes our reading this evening. And after the disciples watch the rich young ruler walk away, Peter, ever the loudmouth, blurts out: Well, we've given up everything to follow you. So what do we get? <laughs> Basically, what's what is there going to be for us? Jesus assures him that those who have sacrificed for Christ's sake will be rewarded. But he ends by saying, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And then he tells the parable that we just read, and he bookends it by repeating that the last shall be first, and the first last. I told a friend this week that this was the parable in our lectionary, and she blurted out what I think probably most of us, if we were being honest, would would think too, oh, I hate that one, (laughs) right? Because our internal lawyers just start rioting. It's just not fair. Now, the specifics of this parable can be interpreted in a few different ways, and over the the course of church history, even within the, the early church itself, there were a few different ways of looking at it. The various times of the day that the landlord goes out to call new workers can give images of various epochs, right? It could be that God has gone out and told of his love, calling people into relationship and service to him ever since the morning of the world, right? So there's Adam and Eve and Abel, and then late in the morning he goes back and he calls Moses and Miriam and Aaron, and then at noon he goes to David and to the prophets, and then in the evening he comes out to the Gentiles who would make up the church, Similarly, the the various times of day could give us images of those who have been called into Christ's church at birth, at the very mornings of their lives, or perhaps in early childhood, or in young adulthood, or those who were called in old age. I think however we look at it, the most important aspect of this parable is driving home some rather large and rather close to home points about how easily it is for us to get sideways even or perhaps most especially when we're doing the work of discipleship there are three things i think for us to see here there's always more than three by the way i think in just preaching school they tell you to pick three or something so here's the three we're going to look at the goodness of the master the surprising nature of judgment day and the problem of spiritual pride and in honor of the parable we're going to start with the last one first okay Spiritual pride is a disease that is startlingly easy to catch. Regardless of what you think the Christian message is, whether you're a fundamentalist who thinks it's disembodied souls escaping hell, or you're a mainline liberal who thinks it's all about bringing material and political justice to the marginalized here and now, or if you're anywhere in between on that spectrum or on a different spectrum of your own, When spiritual pride begins to infect you, the symptoms are generally the same, regardless of what you actually think the gospel message is. You'll find yourself frustrated and angry with others. And you're going to start to continually check and recheck the accounting books. Right? You're going over the numbers. You've been doing the right work. You've been doing the work longer. You've been doing the work of the master while everyone else has shown up late, done it wrong or stood around we can take one more pass with the razor here we may grab a little skin on this one many of us here have come from sort of non-tradition traditions of church right and we've encountered this richness of liturgical worship and we've begun ordering our lives by the church calendar and it is just oh so easy to move from joy in Christ to judgment of others, to go from satisfaction in Christ to spiritual pride. I mean, I'm guessing. I don't have any experience with any of this personally. (laughs) Over the course of my short life, I've actually been in a lot of Christian traditions and communities, and I can tell you, spiritual pride is an equal opportunity employer. It doesn't just infect one kind of church or one kind of church. Christian. In many ways, spiritual pride is the sin that undid the world. Lucifer longed to glorify himself. He became proud and could no longer give God the honor and glory that God deserved. Adam and Eve bought the lie of self-glorification. I think this is really important for us to grasp. The sin of our first parents wasn't a choice between spiritual purity and material carnality, okay? The carnal desires of the flesh all too often root themselves most insidiously in our spirituality, right? It's not that we need to just reject anything physical and we can become free of sin. In many cases, our our quest for spirituality in our own terms leads us deeper into pride. I think this is what John Calvin is getting at when he calls the human heart an idol factory. We have an uncanny ability to misshape everything around us in our attempt to keep ourselves at the center or to turn God into some sort of investment banker, right? I think this is most often revealed or at least most clearly in our reaction to suffering. If our children leave the faith or if our marriage falls apart or our career or our finances or our health take a hard left turn, so often our reaction is, God, I've been doing all the right things. I brought my kids to church. I ate healthy and I didn't smoke and I said morning prayer and I didn't cheat on my taxes. So what gives? And this gets especially hard when we see undeserving people just sort of waltzing through life No problems, just seemingly getting rewarded at every turn. And I think here's the clincher of this parable. It is easy to say that it's all about grace until grace is on offer to nasty people that we don't like. It's really easy to say it's all about grace until that grace is being shown to someone that you know in your bones doesn't deserve it. just to say we're the Jonahs of our own lives. How How many of us maybe were getting a little judgy toward Jonah there, even in that reading, right? Surprise! We're him. We've been met with mercy we don't deserve, and eventually we enter into God's service, and then, bam, the worst people are suddenly cashing God's welfare checks, and we're left just bitter and angry. You've no doubt heard that multitasking isn't real. Right? No one can actually do it. Cell phone driving laws are tightening up because we're we're discovering, ta-da, having your mind on other things while you're driving is real danger. Spiritual pride is the habit of keeping track of yourself in relation to everybody else, or at least everybody who's doing worse than you. Right? It's keeping track of yourself in relation to everybody else. And to resist this temptation, I think, means that we have to be ruthless in keeping our focus where it belongs. Now, typically at this point, I, I think, at least in my own sort of impulse, there's there's this desire for a platitude about love winning out and kindness and non-judgmentalism being the way of the world in God's kingdom. And yeah, absolutely, uh, we need to be kind people and there 's much to be commended in refraining from judgment and letting love be our guide, but I fear that that 's maybe not the full story of the Christian message when we take when we are called to not be judgmental, and then we place that upon God, right because the Christian message is that God has made known his intention to judge the entire world through one man, and he is guaranteed that he will do so by raising that one man from the dead in a few weeks, we will be celebrating the Feast of All Souls, our, our saint name, if you will. And in that feast, we remember our connection with the dead. And the theme that pulses throughout the Feast of All Souls, I think, is one that should be present in our daily lives, which is we are at once all in the same boat. We are, every single one of us, not going to escape this place alive. Not, not this place. Sorry, that was a little ominous. We're not... <laughs> you're not going to get out of your own life alive, right? All of us are in that boat. Not only that, we are all, each of us, in the same boat of being undone before our creator. We have no standing before him in our own righteousness. All of us are the same in that. It does not matter how good you have been or how bad you have been. All of us have fallen short. But along with this similarity this thing that unites all of us together there is also an irreducible singularity to our lives lived before God meaning at the end each of us will stand alone before the judgment seat of Christ and there will be no side-eyeing there will be no what about what about that guy what about that guy that's not going to happen there We're all together in the fact that we are undone before God, and we are all by ourselves in the fact that each one of us is called to walk with Christ, and we will one day face him. That's that's just what it is. Judgment day is going to be, in a word, surprising. If the mother of Christ himself is any guide in her praying, then we know that the weak and lowly will be lift up, lifted up. The hungry will be filled with good things, and the mighty will be sent away empty. The last will be first, and the first will be last. And I think this is part of what we talk about when we say that we're eschatological people. We have to be people who are living with a surprising end in view. Which means, quite frankly, that, that we sort of need to refrain from our own judgments a lot of times. Because we don't actually know how people's stories are going to end. We need to live ready for a surprise in the end. Why? Why will judgment day be surprising? Why will the last be first? Why will the weak and lowly be lifted up? Is it because the last or the weak or the lowly are somehow special? Is it because having a rough go of it on earth automatically makes you holy? No. It's only because of the goodness of the master. The goodness of the landlord in this parable is the key to the whole thing. Not just the parable, but the entire universe and your place in it. And this brings us back to a place we return a lot here. What is the point of being a Christian? Is it doing the right things and believing the right things so that you can get rewarded either with some sort of easier life now or at least after death? That's karma, not Christianity. That's the sort of thinking our internal attorneys love to keep whispering to us. Well, you're doing better than that guy, you're doing better than that guy. Just keep trying to do a little bit better and you're going to be fine. But it's not the way of Jesus. The point of being a Christian is to be plunged into the divine life. It is to be brought back into communion and relationship with the triune God. When we talk about being gospel people here, we don't mean being able to just make a mental checklist of all the doctrinal necessities of Christianity. Those are incredibly important. So important that we hit on them every single week, almost all of them in the Nicene Creed. But we mean more than just having a mental checklist of of doctrine. We mean more and more we want to fundamentally understand ourselves, right? Like as a knee-jerk reaction fundamentally understand ourselves as people who have been brought out of death and into life by the power of the spirit not by anything we've done we're not just people who have been given second chances to go out and do better we are not just people who have had the guilt of our past erased so that we can sleep better at night If you're baptized and have placed your faith in Christ, you are someone who had been wandering around in death and darkness with zero chances of ever getting out on your own. But in baptism, you are plunged into Christ's death and you came out of the water in his life. You are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, and now it is no longer you who live. It's Christ who lives in you. Your life is rooted in the very life of God. If you have been baptized into Christ, you have been brought into the communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How does that happen? How did that happen to you? Well, it happens because the Master is so good that he doesn't just go out once. He doesn't just go out twice. He goes out again and again and again and again, and he calls people into his vineyard. It's all about the goodness of the master. Now, not to get too far afield as we end here, but I I just want you to see this. These images, they all matter, right? They're not accidental. What's the purpose of a vineyard? All throughout scripture, God's image for his work in and with his people is a vineyard. The prophets refer to Israel as a vineyard all the time. Sometimes the vineyard is being trampled down and overrun. Sometimes it's bearing incredible fruit. Jesus tells us in John's gospel that he's the vine and we're the branches. That doesn't just come out of nowhere, right? God's people have always understood themselves as a vineyard. And in that passage in John, Jesus is explicitly telling us that we are sacramentally linked to him. Right? That's that's what that's about. You show me where a vine ends and a branch begins, and I can show you where you, if you're in Christ, can live apart from Jesus. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. There, there is no like there's the branch over there and there's the vine over there. They're, they're connected. But what's the purpose of a vineyard? It's not grape jam, it's not grape juice, it's wine. It's wine. All vineyards are directed toward wine. The vineyard of God's people and his work in the world is directed toward the marriage supper of the Lamb, where men's hearts will be made glad with the wine of God himself. This is what we're ultimately being called to. Right? We're being called to a marriage feast. We just happen to have a really bad knack for turning it back into duty, back into rules to follow, back into ways in which I can compare myself to somebody else. I'd be remiss if I ignored one of the fathers of the church, St. Augustine. He would say to his congregation on this passage Some of you might think, well, if I can get, get in for just like an hour of work at the end, why not just live my life, and then I can come later? And what he said to them was, you don't actually know when your day is over. The point is that the Master is calling, even right now. Right now, not, this is not Augustine, this is right now. Right now, the Master is calling. He's inviting you into this feast, this work, this kingdom. He's called. Those of you that have been baptized, he has called. That's how you're here. If I could sum up this parable in like one sentence, it's just this. Stop side-eyeing the other workers. Stop asking what about so-and-so and just do the work that he has given you to do and do it with joy, knowing that you have already been given the only reward there is. It's Christ himself. He is the reward. We're not leaning into God so that we can get something else. We're getting him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.